Hala Alian is the author of the novel Salt Houses, winner of the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Arab American Book Award, and a finalist for the Chautauqua Prize, as well as the novel The Arsonist City and four award-winning collections of poetry, most recently the 29th year. Her work has been published by The New Yorker, The Academy of American Poets, The New York Times Book Review, and Guernica. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, where she works as a clinical psychologist. Hala Alian, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a writer, a, a poet, a novelist, a clinical psychologist, a therapist. Uh, but we'll discuss your creative work to begin. Uh, you're reading from one of your books? Yes, I will start us off with a little excerpt. Um, this is from the latest book. It's called The Arts in a City. And it's a story about a family that goes back to spend a summer in Beirut um, and try to stop the sale of their ancestral home. And this is the section. Um, the book is sort of divided into perspectives of different family members. So it's like the two parents and their three adult children. And this is Naj, who is the youngest um, daughter, and she already lives in Beirut and is sort of very anxious about her family's visit. So this is her walking home after a very late night out through Beirut. At this hour, the city has a narcotic effect. Ambient noise drifts from the passing cabs, a French song, a man coughing, and the few people on the street share a certain camaraderie, nodding and smiling wryly at each other. Beirut is an insomniac city, unfocused, filled with half-finished buildings and impromptu crowds. There has been a high rise under construction on Naj's block since she bought the apartment several years ago. She'd lived in this neighborhood longer though, since her move from the States. The newer houses live dissonantly among the older, plain ones. The city doesn't change from neighborhood to neighborhood as much as building to building, and Naj is tired of remembering the former incarnations of places. The spa that was once a fabric store, the health food market that was once filled with antiques and toys. Her own apartment building is similarly disjointed. The glass entrance has been cracked since December, but there is a stupidly ornate chandelier in the lobby, refracting light on guests like confetti. The elevator hasn't worked in months. Abu Nabil, the building's cranky middle-aged super, lives in a small room next to the stairs. Someone decided to paint the stairwell a modern dark red, but that apparently changed their mind on Naj's floor where the walls of the stairwell become abruptly beige. Each floor has two apartments and Naj likes her neighbors, an elderly pair of widowed sisters who go out every Sunday in matching dresses and honest-to-God church hats. There's a hand-painted sign on her front door that reads, abandon all blankie who enter here. The space intentionally left bare and people have scrawled in things like Wi-Fi and bras. The sisters have never complained, not once. Nash's apartment smells stale, like something yeasty left out too long with undertones of weed even though she hasn't smoked in days. Near the window, an assortment of plants droop in various stages of dying. She always forgets about them. One second, she promises them, then trots to the kitchen and fills a mug. She goes from plant to plant, watering the dusty soil. You get water, you get water, you get water, she sings out like Oprah. The water bubbles in the soil, then starts to drip onto the windowsill underneath. The plants remind her of her mother, of the swampy smell she'd bring home with her after a day at the greenhouse. The apartment is a three-bedroom. 
too large for her, but over the years, the rooms have filled of their own volition with guitars and clothes and hosted a succession of friends who've left their exes. The electricity cuts off most afternoons and the balcony rail squeaks anytime someone leans on it. The water runs hot for only a few minutes, but she loves it. And more than that, she loves the idea of herself as loyal to modest living. The apartment represents her restraint. She could easily buy one of, in one of the high rises, but she doesn't. Her band's ethos is folksy. Nash had once been called the proletariat's duchess on the cover of a European music magazine. The amount of her money, the amount of money in her Credit Libanais account, frankly, embarrasses her. Her father had been furious when she bought the apartment. She was only 24, flushed from the surprising success of their first album, Proposal. It hadn't reached the United States, but sold well in Europe, taking off like a rocket in random cities, Amman, Kosovo, Athens, Riyadh. But the audiences seemed to have in common used the article Naj had taped to the refrigerator. Our places of censorship, corruption, oppression. The musical duo Noja, fronted by Naj, Ney Najla Nasser, creates an album of defiance with guttural lyrics, powerhouse performances, and most compellingly, a mixture of Arabic and English words so that the listener might often be unsure of what is being said, but is happy to sing along. She loves looking at the art. That's so beautiful. And you can really hear your roots. Uh, I believe you uh, began as a poet and it's a kind of a seamless transition as we hear there. And so much, you know, it's interesting because you've lived in many cities and different countries. And I am also international having had to recreate myself in different places. It resonates with me. And how, you know, you kind of home travels with you. And it's interesting also because the, as I got to know through the novel, uh, different different members in a family always, but when you leave your home country, uh, will have different memories. So you one will like be closer to home, and then the others who rebuilt their life in America, and we have all this. We have our memory, and we misremember. And I, I'm just like appreciating the things in the passage you selected and the, how these buildings and cities that we've lived in re- mm. remember us too and mm. um, how the things that we own own us as well. Yes. So, uh, you know, as you were writing that book, what were you discovering about yourself and your family? What a beautiful question. I think, I think, Partly what you just said was one of the things that I feel like I uncovered in the in, in the research and the sort of making of this project was, was this idea of in order to write a family realistically whose parents had been born. So the mother, the matriarch is Syrian, the father is Lebanese. They met during the Lebanese Civil War and immigrated to the States in the late 70s. And their three children are, for all intents and purposes, American, like born and raised on American soil. Um, Every summer or two would visit uh, home, but that was pretty much it, right? And I think having to really ask myself, what what would be the things that each of these characters hold on to or release or remember or forget about the place that has been left behind is, I think, a really was a very central question, you know, like one of the, I mean, I would say one of the, I think the the mother character in particular 
really is is excited to leave. She does not want to like is is very much looking forward to going to the states. And of course, her experience in America is not what she expected it to be. But but she is she is very kind of voluntarily and eagerly leaving um, the, the 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 Arab world behind. Whereas the father, I think, is just doing it out of circumstance. And so their relationship to what it is to not get to be home or what America means to them is very different. And I think you see even the children. You know, like between the three siblings their understanding of what Beirut means to them or what Syria means to them also is really different. And I think that also helped me figure out what their characters were going to be and what their personalities were going to be and, you know, how emotional or emotive or nostalgic or whatever. Like, I think in some ways answering the question of how they related to the these home countries actually helped me flesh out the characters in a lot of other ways too. And I think that in, in doing that, I had to think about my family and I had to think about myself and I had to think about, okay, if I were Mezna, the matriarch and I was coming and then this happened, like, you know, really asking myself too, what my, what my relationship with these different places are, including the ones that I've never been to, including the ones that belong to my parents, but I haven't had access to, or I've only been able to visit. That's interesting as well, how memories can be passed on and inherited through the generations and even almost those places that are enclosed in silence, because maybe there's also there's love, but there's also pain there. But this it holds up this mystery. And it seems like, I mean, I know a number of writers and artists, and I wonder and I am myself, and I wonder whether this act of immigration or exile or being a refugee, um, if they had not had that experience, would they have become artists? And do you mm -hmm. think that you yourself would have become a writer and a clinical psychologist if those experiences didn't set up like a, yeah. no, why? It's such a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I guess there's no way to know for sure, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I remember, so I started writing around the time I learned English because we moved to the States soon after my fourth birthday. And so I was here for kindergarten um, into elementary school. And I, I grasped this new language just as I was learning how to also put things onto the page. And so those two things really happened at the same time for me. Like I entered this world where I felt very different and very othered and had had a very, you know, I was in for all intents and purposes, was set to be born and to be raised in Kuwait. Um, so I had the American passport, just literally, we were here for a couple of weeks, I got a passport, went back to Kuwait, and the idea was that I was going to grow up in Kuwait. Um, and then that, of course, got turned upside down after the invasion by Saddam. And so I, I, I think I, I think that so much of my trying to make sense of the world had to do with the displacement and the exile and these experiences that my parents had experienced, but then that I had as well at four when we were fleeing the war. And so I, it's, it's hard to know because I think in some ways language was being formed in my brain at the same time that these things were happening at the same time that I was feeling a pull towards reading and books and kind of escaping into other worlds and then slowly being wanting to create my own other worlds so that other people could escape in them. Like I would write short stories, little tiny, I mean, little stories when I was like seven, eight, nine, like it was something that I was always doing as a form of escapism as well. So it's, it's hard to say, I, I think that, especially for me, they all happened around the same time that I, it's hard to not think that they're connected. Yeah, it's wonderful, the kind of secret companionship that books, uh, yes. well, other art forms, but I think particularly that books have, you know, you can. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. They're your buddies. 
And I think especially, you know, I, I, for me, my experience here is very much one where I didn't really, I felt very much um, on the outside of a lot of, ex of, of a lot of the kind of lives and upbringings and childhoods that the people my age were having. I felt very disconnected from that. And then with books, I could just, I could be whatever I wanted to be. I could be, you know, a middle-aged woman living in Savannah. I could be like, I could, I could, I could have all sorts of different lives. Um, and I think that, again, I think there was something about being able to pour myself into kind of these, like, it was both sort of looking into a warped mirror that sort of like you, it's kind of like you step into it and then you like emerge completely transformed. But then I think also there is an element of it too. That's like really comforting because you read about someone having an experience of feeling left out. And even if that person is a different age, a different race, a different country than you, you still as a reader can connect with that feeling or with that emotionality. I think that's also incredibly, um, I don't know, it's very humanizing. I think it makes you feel less alone in the world. Yes, and so you spoke there a little bit about how books are part of this, well, sort of a healing process or a companionship. And then you're, you've also been drawn through the healing to, to be a healer, I, I don't know how you would, right. you'd say yeah. that. Um, and and what, what are the two different pleasures that you get from that? I mean, they're not identical, but they must be related. They're, they're super related. So I've always said, I think like in a lot of ways, the currency of all of the different things I do in my life is storytelling. And that is certainly true for, for I teach, I, I'm a clinical psychologist, I do therapy, I teach and I write. And all three of them deal at, at the core, the smallest unit is that of telling stories. And I think there's something very similar in being a therapist and being a writer, for me at least, in that you, you have to make sense of having these sort of fragmented pieces and learn the skill of creating cohesion from that and, and allowing the narrative to emerge from things that seem disconnected or seem sort of like splintered off. Um, and that's something for me that I've, I've found to be really exhilarating. I mean, I think that like I, the pleasure I get from writing is, is certainly more, I think it's more directly connected to creating and making something that wasn't there before and feeling like I'm part of the lineage of like, you know, this craft that has existed for so long. But I think with therapy, the pleasure has to do with like being a vehicle for other people and sort of a co-participant for other people to, to watch their stories get created and watch their stories kind of get co-created and watch them get recreated and rewritten and retweaked. And I mean, we are the, the power of a story. I mean, this is, I know it's not the most like revolutionary thing to say, but like stories have a tremendous amount of power in both directions. So also, and I think in psych, you see that a lot in, in the, in the negative direction that we become the stories we tell ourselves. And so if I tell myself a story about how I'm an addict, or I tell myself a story about how I'm not worthy of love, or I'm never going to change or whatnot, that becomes that becomes your life, you know? And I think that like, there is some refracturing that can happen around those stories that can be really revolutionary, but first you have to identify what's the story you've been telling yourself. Uh, I noticed that you teach undergraduate writing workshops. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what the crossover is between treating patients with their trauma and then teaching young men and women how to write out their narratives. I think it's very similar. So there's a kind of therapy that I really like called narrative therapy. And that is directly connected to like, you know, physically writing out your story or at least recording your story and, and, and retelling it, retelling it, retelling it. Um, 
so that it becomes an integrated part of you. I think a lot of times when a person's experienced a trauma, that is the one story they tell over and over again internally. And that story becomes, especially when people kind of get re-traumatized, it starts to feel like that is the most important thing about them. That is the defining defining characteristic about them and their life is the, is the traumatic thing that happens to them, the traumatic you know, thing that they endured. Um, and I think one of the things that storytelling does is it allows you to integrate the experience. So it is something that has happened to you or that you've lived through or that has passed through you, but it's not the only thing about you. And so it becomes one of many multi-layered complex factors of you and your ecosystem and your life and whatnot. Um, and I think writing is like teaching writing it, for undergrads and in these workshop settings, it feels very similar. Even if it's not necessarily about trauma, you still have people coming in with that are like, there's so much I want to say, and there's so many things I want to like, there's so many ways I want to put it. Um, and I don't know where to begin and I feel insecure and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to put this on the page. It's a very similar process of just kind of being like, okay, why don't we allow this to be one element? I always tell people, it's like, just write the story. It's, and, and, and if you, if you operate from a scarcity mentality where it's like, there's not enough stories or there's not enough ideas to go get along, go along. I promise you, you're going to stay in that scarcity mode. You're, you're, you're not going to be generative. It's not, you're not going to have like a, it's, you know, a flow of inspiration and whatnot. It's really when you're willing to kind of burn your ideas, so to speak, and you're willing to be like, okay, put it in the story. Okay. Put it in the poem. Now move on. Now what's the other thing? That's the most generative headspace I think people can be in. And I really love that process of, teaching undergrads in particular folks at that in that life stage because I think they come in sort of with so much enthusiasm and so much eagerness and also sometimes really stuck on certain things around like well are they good enough are they going to be able to produce etc so for yourself how do you communicate as much of yourself as possible in your writing in your poetry in your essays without leaving parts of your experience that may have to do with maybe moving from one place to another, maybe different parts of your family, maybe different parts of your personal experience. With that meaning without including or without like allowing some things to be for just for me. Got it. I, I was going to say without excluding parts of your personal experience, how do you communicate yourself without leaving something out? I mean, I try not, I, I think the answer is I try not to. I think there are some things that I know I won't write about probably ever, honestly, more because they can, they're connected to other people. So I think there are some stories that even though they've involved me or they've happened in part to me, don't fully feel like they're mine to tell because they feel connected to someone else sort of has ownership to that experience. So I, I think other than that, and this is very different than the answer I would have given five years ago or 10 years ago, I was a lot more like precious about my own being like, oh, the privacy and the this and the that. I think at this point, like so much about me is found through my writing and you can do like a google search and find like you know poems that like very much like lay something out that you know of, of like a life stage I was at when I wrote that that I've sort of just kind of let go of this idea of needing to feel protected from these experiences like I'm like if I've had an experience and I and it is processed enough to put it on the page I will put it on the page and so I, I don't actually feel like I'm trying to keep anything out the one thing I will say is that if if there there are some things in my life that still feel very raw or fear feel kind of like the, the trauma in them is still too charged, I do think it's really important to differentiate writing around trauma, around things that are wounded um, for the for the sake of 
writing and for the sake of putting it on the page and beginning to process it versus for publication. So I might, I might write through something that feels heart achy or, or difficult now when I'm in it, but I won't immediately try to submit that for publication. That I will wait on and wait to process it. So I've, I've sort of also started distinguishing between that kind of therapeutic writing um, and then the writing that is more for production or for consumption or to share or to have other folks read. And again, that same life thing might still be something that at some point you publish about, but I, I won't do it when I'm like, not when I haven't processed it. Like Mia pointed out after Hala's reading, different members in the family always have different memories. This is really a through line for the characters of the book who each seem to remember migration and diaspora differently. This point blends really well with what Hala says about narrative therapy. Each of the characters went through the same event, but as they find peace, they begin to unravel their experience. Even if every family member were to see the same thing, they may craft the narrative and emphasize the moments according to who they are and what they need from their narrative. This idea that the stories we tell ourselves colors our viewpoints once we've told them enough times makes its way into the worlds of both creative writing and psychology. Poetry, in particular, has a way of putting these ideas under intense critical scrutiny because it demands that we impart something very selective and polished. In some ways, creative writing asks authors to give what the audience needs from the narrative. Both of Hada's readings in this episode have to do with her personal relationship with diaspora, strife, and culture, and the people that are spiritually with her as she writes. Like she points out, her patients don't come to her alone. They bring their family, friends, and past with them. This collectivism in psychology comes through even in Hala's one-on-one therapy sessions. Later on in this episode, we start to speak directly to the idea of collective trauma. These themes of narrative and personal experience have a direct relationship to the collective. These experiences that we make public could be part of how a society's narrative is constructed. One of the things I took away from this episode is how essential it can be for a society to choose their stories carefully and to craft them consciously. If a patient in a therapist's office is bringing the most important people in their lives with them, then that same patient is being carried around by many of those people. Stories can be comforting, exposing, and hopefully therapeutic. And then it's, I'm very interested in the different traditions, uh, different uh, approaches that people take towards healing in different cultures. And I wondered if maybe you could uh, contrast, you know, whether it's Kuwait or uh, Palestine, Mm. Syria or other places that you know or know through your family. I mean, I know that I think that I think of America as being a place where you have a healing culture there, but maybe it's one where happiness is kind of like imposed or yeah. norm. And yeah. whereas my encounters, I can't say that I'm very knowledgeable about all across the Arab world, but when I've heard stories, an acceptance of loss or grief or mourning. <laughs> I mean, there's just all these fascinating traditions where, I don't know, you could go into detail, but what I've heard stories where people were just like the mourning process, you think they're on the verge of death or I don't know how it changes from country to country, mm-hmm. but, sure. but then afterwards it's sort of like fasting or whatever. And then afterwards everyone has a party, you know, so it's just. Right. Right, 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 right. Just tell us some of those interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a very lovely question. I mean, I, I, I would say that a lot of what I learned in school 
I then kind of had to unlearn as I started working with different communities and different populations. I think, you know, the field of psychotherapy was ultimately created by and for white people of a certain socioeconomic status in the West. Like that's, that's, and that's not to say healing practices were created here. They were definitely not. And a lot of the folks that created psychotherapy actually took very liberally from, from practices um, all over the world. Right. Um, there's a lot of elements of like Buddhism, for example, and certain like more cognitive behavioral approaches. But I think, so I think for me, there was a lot of stuff that I learned. And then when I actually kind of got on, got on the ground and started working with different populations, it was like, oh, I kind of have to forget a bunch of that because it doesn't necessarily apply to these folks and these communities. And um, I think, I think we live, I think you're very right. I think happiness is sort of shoved down people's throats in the West. I think there, I think the West is very death phobic. I think it's very illness phobic. I think that um, it's very aging phobic. And I think that there are a lot of places in the world where those experiences are just seen to be, and one could say it's fatalistic, you can use whatever language you want, but like are just seen to really kind of practically and frankly be part of life. That that's just something that is is part of what it is to be alive and what it is to, to exist. And um, I do think that also the collectivism values that we see in, in other parts of the world are also one of the ways in which people mitigate suffering or despair is that people suffer together or they share or they, you know, if you're grieving, you, you don't grieve alone. Like, whereas I think there's an emphasis when we think about healing in, in the West, in the, in the US, and again, this is changing, but this sort of st standard stereotypical idea of healing often is very individualistic. It's very much like the, 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 the person feels better. Like, you have to lift you up and you have to make you feel better. And I think that there are, are a lot of other places in the world, the Middle East, I mean, their world included where like, what lifts you up is your community. It's your family. It's your, it's your religious, like um, your, the, the clergy people that you, the, the, at the church or the mosque or whatever that you go to. Um, it's your second cousins. It's the neighbors. It's the, this and that. There's just much more of like a, you have a tribe. And, and, that, and again, that can work against and for, right? So like, you know, I did my dissertation on like sexual violence among Arab and Arab immigrants. And it's like, oftentimes the collectivism was a deterrent from ever revealing or disclosing because there was the fear that that was going to call it disruption or, you know, so everything is like a weapon and a tool, right? Um, depending on how you're sort of engaging with it. But it's generally speaking, I think there's like more of an emphasis on support through community when, when we're looking at other parts of the world. And I try to bring that into therapy, even though I'm one person, I'm ultimately still doing kind of that individualistic thing. I do primarily one-on-one -on -one therapy with people, but I try to remember that the person that's in the room with me is bringing in everyone that they grew up with as well. And they're bringing in their caretakers and they're bringing in their siblings and their cousins and their grandparents that they have, like that they're, that you're, you are really sort of trying to heal all of these imprints of all these other people and communities that they've in, interacted with as well. And just a funny side note, and then I have a question, is I was, I work with all these students and I remember one is uh, she is American and I introduced them to some of my colleagues in France and she smiled all the time because this is a very American thing. And I was approached later by my French colleagues. They said, are, are she okay? They told <laughs> she was unstable and she should go to hospital oh, <laughs> so this is the thing that's like the image it's, yes 
Yes. Thought she's, she's, you know, she's not, uh, she's, she's not normal. <laughs> she's not okay. That's really fun. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's so, per- I mean, that's such a perfect example, right? Where it's like, I think actually this obsession with happiness, quote unquote happiness that you see in the West is kind of pathological. Like when you really think about it in terms of like what life is and, and what it is to sort of, I mean, there's been more conversations around this idea of like toxic positivity, you know, this idea of like when people are like, be grateful, you could be like suffering in different ways or be happy. If you're alive, you should be happy. Or, you know, I think it's starting to, to realize that that doesn't, that's never made anyone feel better <laughs> and it's never been effective. Um, and I think like this, this sort of real rigid desire to always feel good just does not in line with what it is to be human. To be human is to sometimes feel good and sometimes not feel good and have a range of experiences and experience sorrow and experience grief and experience joy and experience celebration. Like that's just what it is to be a person on this planet. And I think there there is a bit of an obsession in our in our part of the world to sanitize that. And speaking of um, sanitizing things, I mean, you live in Manhattan, in Brooklyn. Uh, so that's, uh, I think it's a more, um, I think there's a lot, there's more noises, there's more, it's it's less homogenous than I think other parts of America. But one experience that one has maybe going to different cities in America is there's this, you know, marketing has overtaken things and things are just like level. Right out and so what I love you know reading in uh your novels and in your poetry is that you really get all these senses these details the flaws the the cracks the just it just it's just like this perfume of just these details so Mm. how do you you know stay in touch with that I mean I don't know as you're writing I guess you're doing some traveling when travel is possible (laughs) Um, but how do you yeah how do I mean it must be kind of a sense memory thing that happens Totally. Yes. First of all, thank you. That's such a lovely compliment. Um, I think, I think it's definitely sensory. I think I also am in the world in a way, like, I think part of it is just like, I'm the instrument, like I'm the instrument that goes out in the world and then sits down and writes. And so my, my ecosystem, the particular ecosystem that I personally inhabit is one that's pretty sensitive to like those sort of details. And like, it kind of, and like I automatically pay attention to setting and to place in a way that I imagine the average person probably does not. Like I, like there's a bit of a heightened sensitivity when I'm in a new place or even in an old place, I pick up on certain, I'm just very hyper aware of surroundings. I'm very hyper aware of setting. And that's why I think it's such a central part of almost everything that I write. Usually setting works its way into that. Um, but I think there is, yeah, I think there's usually some combination of like, I'm traveling, so I'm paying a little bit more attention, or I'm relying on memory, which is its own kind of attention, right? Like writing is, I mean, writing, creating and art in general is just a practice of learning how to like, use your attention um, appropriately, and like how to modulate it and how to like be able to pour enough of it here and not so much there and etc. And so I think it's when I when I work with memory, there's a fair amount of kind of like, trying to, yeah, trying to go back to sensory details, but again, I guess I wouldn't have anything to go back to if I wasn't paying attention to it in the first place. So I think the answer is in part, I'm just, I'm, I'm someone that sort of moves through the world in that way. Um, just very, yeah, very mindful of space. I read your um, essay, I think it's in Emergence Magazine about fear. I think yeah. it was published recently. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, because you go through fear very like individually for yourself and you go through different cultures, but the conclusion of the essay is about, I think, mindfulness mm-hmm. for how to like 
go about surrendering to the fear so that your personal responses don't kick in to worsen your own like trauma reactions, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, but you touch on collective trauma a little bit throughout that essay. I wanted to ask you um, what there is that we can do to like feel our own, sure. feel what part of our own mind is caught up in collective trauma and what we can do to resolve that for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably very similar in at least I'm biased, but like, I think my, my, my answer would be something around like mindfulness and being able to pay attention and being able to kind of accept that an uncomfortable feeling is an uncomfortable feeling and you can tolerate it. And, um, and that's not to say, that's not to sound cold or dispassionate. It's, it's actually said with a lot of compassion, a lot of love. It's like, you know, that, that just because something is hard does not mean it will destroy you or that you can't get through it. Um, I do think that's, I mean, I like that question in terms of collective trauma, where I think we're kind of in this moment right now. I don't know where you two are based, but I, so I'm, I'm in Brooklyn and this was a city that got hit really hard with COVID and, now we have like an excellent vaccination rate and people are just indoors without their masks and everyone's just having like this, you know, everyone's just like the summer, it's the summer of return, everyone's out and about. And it, it is a little bit like you kind of get an emotional whiplash because you go like, whoa, we went from one extreme and now we're in this totally other extreme. And are we, is anyone going to talk about all of the things that happened in between? Like it, like the, for me, that feels actually like a symptom of, of I mean, I don't want to like diagnose everyone, but, but it feels to me like it has this almost dissociative element that feels actually very compatible with trauma of like, there's just kind of like a shutdown and like, we don't, we're not going to talk about that. That was we don't, and again, I think that has to do with the fact that we live in a culture that's really death phobic and illness phobic, that suddenly, I think our culture is obsessed with this idea of like not thinking about death and not thinking about illness, not thinking about aging. And then suddenly we all had nothing to do aside from um, essential workers, but be in our houses and think about the possibility of death or illness and hear sirens for, the, for those of us that were in New York or like watch the news and see the death toll rise. And suddenly that existential just awareness was really present on everybody. And now that it's lifted a little bit, the, the, the desire to just shoot to the other end and just go back to being like, we don't have to think about that. We don't have to think about illness. We don't have to think about death. You know, I think that feels a little bit like it has a traumatic element to it and or a traumatized element to it. And I think what I would say is like, you know, I'm not advocating for wallowing and I'm not advocating for, you know, like every day you need to sit down for hours and really think about what COVID did or didn't do to you and what did it take from the world? No, that's also not going to be of any utility to anyone either. But I think being able to like have some processing, you know, some like, like catharsis and closure and like ability to say like, this was a really, really hard year and a half for most people on this planet. Not everyone, but most people on this planet suffered in some way or another, lost their jobs, lost their lives, lost their livelihood, lost people that they loved, couldn't make it to people. Like I, my grandfather passed away. I couldn't, he, it wasn't from COVID, but he was in Beirut and I couldn't get to him because of COVID. So like there's, there's people missed weddings, people missed births of children. Like it was a hard year. And to be able to just say that and sit with that in community with others to say like, I see the way that you suffer and you see the way that I've suffered and we can go get ice cream now. We don't have to spend all afternoon talking about it but we can at least like nod at it and be able to make a little bit of space for it. I think that that, that would sort of be the, 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 the vision that I would have in terms of how to, how to deal with. It. And this is just an example of sort of like a collective drama. 
And in terms of collective trauma, I mean, I feel, I, and I live in Paris, I feel mm-hmm. like we're fortunate. We've all gone through this. I did go through that losing my father, not of COVID, but not being able to travel, not being able to- I'm so travel. sorry, Mia. Um, but no, it's just, I th- we've all gone through that. Yeah. I feel that in many ways we're fortunate though, because it's kind of remarkable this that we've all gone through, but we, we can, we kind of know what normal is. And as I reflect on, um, and I, I imagine that you do as well on Palestine or, or Syria and these, uh, these places in the world that you're connected to, uh, mm-hmm. where their sense of normal is not, you know, for even childhood, what's a normal childhood? Exactly. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I don't expect. Yeah. You- No, no, no. I think that's a wonderful question. I mean, I think also what we consider to be normative absolutely varies wildly. I mean, what's normative for someone that's in Gaza is, is I think, unimaginable to most people that are that are elsewhere. I I, there's um, there's a really I think there's this concept that was sort of coined by a psychiatrist in in Palestine. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. Sama Javed, I think. And she and she talks about this idea of how like we talk about PTSD in the West, but there is no PTSD in Palestine. For example, I'm just using this, this as an example, that there's not really a, PT, a, a post-traumatic stress disorder in Palestine because in order to get that diagnosis, the trauma has to be over. You have to say post-traumatic. So you have to be after the trauma and how there are, there are places like Palestine, like also like this place, and like other places in the world where there is no post, where the trauma is chronic and it's enduring and, and it's impossible really to heal from it because you kind of need a reprieve. You need a pause from the trauma in order to cope with the trauma or to process the trauma. But if it's, if it's constant and it's ongoing, you're never going to get that, 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 that capacity to get a little bit of distance and reset um, and try to work on your healing. And so then you're healing as the trauma is kind of ongoing and you're kind of doing both of these things simultaneously, which obviously is not the ideal model for healing from trauma. So I think that's an example of like, yeah, there's not really, there are our whole conceptualization of what it is to be traumatized. Mine certainly is. And I'm trying to sort of, again, challenge this and unlearn this and, and not even unlearn it, but like expand it to include other places and other communities. Mine is still very entrenched in a, in a very like, I would say white, Western model of psychotherapy and of how we conceptualize trauma. That's, you know, that's where I was trained. And again, trying to like learn how to break that apart and make space for other conceptualizations of it. But I think that would be the one thing that would come to mind is that we think about it in this part of the world as being something that ends and then you heal from it. And that linearity and that simplicity just doesn't exist everywhere. It's true. And as you say, it go, does go back to, and then I know you have a, I will wind to that now. Um, it's true because everything is kind of around this model of the individual. Uh, And so, yeah, that has this hopefulness that you can just solve problems like that, or you can take a pill. Uh, And, and I think that that doesn't solve a a lot of things. Um, There's a sense of continuation, but certainly through your writing and your novels and your poetry and, that gives a sense of continuation to the all the human 
spaces and those unspoken moments and uh, the silences and the forgetting and the pain that lives beside uh, love. And uh, so we really, uh, and for those who haven't yet uh, read Hala's writing, uh, it's a a wonderful place to explore those um, multi-generational stories uh, to perhaps get in touch with cultures that your family may have left behind in their own immigration or refugee process, but just really uh, beautiful human stories. Would you like to read one of your poems? Sure, yeah. I'm going to read this piece. It's called When They Say Pledge Allegiance, I Say. When they say pledge allegiance, I say, my country is a ghost, a mouth trying to say sorry, and it comes out all smoke, all citizen and bullet and seed. My country is a machine, a spell of bad weather, a feather lacing my mother's black hair. I mean her dyed hair. I mean her blonde hair. I mean her hair matches my country. So shiny and borrowed and painted over. My country is a number, like it is 1948 and my great-great-grandmother flattens bread with her hands while my other great-great-grandmother prays with her hands. One watches her land disappear. The other builds a house on land that will disappear. My country is an airport line, a year of highways and intermission. My country is Stockholm syndrome, is immigrant mouth saying thank you, saying please, saying my country is no country but ghost, is no man but ghost. My country is dead. My country is named the dead. Give them their letters, give them their salt. My country is a mouth trying to say pledge and it comes out all salt. My country is a mouth and nobody can pronounce my name. I mean, my country forgets my name. I mean, my country is always asking for my name and I'm always saying it twice, spelling it like an address. My country is a number, like it is 1967 and every Arab leader is crying. Every mother is clutching the son she has left. My great-grandmother names my mother nostalgia while my other great-grandmother names my father again. My country is all ghost. My grandmother is all ghost. My grandmother is a country. I mean, my grandmother is my country. I mean, my country is a lie, is an emptied house, is 1,000 cardboard boxes. My country is remember when we left Akka. I mean, Gaza. I mean, Homs. My country is a number, like it is 1990. My mother is crossing a border. I mean, desert. I mean, life. I'm at her heels. I'm paying attention. I'm learning to play, to pray to a flag. I mean, I'm learning English. I mean, I'm forgetting Arabic. Or it's 2006 and my grandparents won't evacuate, won't leave another war and all summer I dream of floods, collect bullets and love the wrong person. Or it's 2003 and I am in Beirut watching Baghdad burn because of America. I mean, I am in my country watching my country burn because of my country. Or it's 2020 and the women in Beirut are a sea. I mean, my country looks beautiful in red. I mean, I look beautiful in red. I mean, this country likes me in red, or it is every year and my country is taken. I mean, my country is stolen land. I mean, all of my countries are stolen land. I mean, sometimes I am on the wrong side of the stealing. My country is an opening. I mean, bloom. I mean, bloom not like flower, but bloom like explosion. My country is a teacher. I mean, do you want to see my passport? I mean, do you like my accent? I mean, I stole them. I mean, I stole them. I mean, where do you think I got that from? Thank you. Yes, that's so, uh, it's just full of beautiful erasures. Uh, Thank you. And, and, and the many things that a country can mean. Um, I yeah. guess just in closing, um, you know, as you think about the future, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? 
I think I would like people to remember what brought them here and that there is a whole lineage and legacy that precedes them and that sometimes that legacy is one of bloodshed and sometimes that legacy is one of occupation and and just being mindful of that. I think that, you know, I think as long as we are aware of what our lineage is in terms of what 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 brought us to this specific moment, we can we can face and own our privileges and we can face and own the ways in which we've been oppressed or marginalized and 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 do the work, whatever we can in community and on our own to try to change those stories. And and and, and again, stories are wonderful, but they have to be supplemented also with like policy change. And you do need to like, you know, like, you know, beyond like whether that takes place for whether that for you looks like signing petitions or marching on the streets or raising awareness or whatever it is, right? Like donating. Um, I think I think this 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 balance for young people of like being aware of the past, studying the past, understanding history, and also like always positioning the body towards the future. I think that's a really powerful place to be. Well, that's uh, beautifully put. So thank you, Hala Alian, for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing these poems and stories about memory, exile, love, homeland, and Arab culture. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Ian Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews podcast on this podcast was Mustafa Sheikh. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or to submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.